Hello and welcome to another special Halloween episode of The Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. As always, I'm JT, and I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Well, everyone, as I said, I had another episode that just couldn't wait. Lisa Houtman from EXP Realty took the time to come on the show and answer some questions about haunted houses. What do you have to disclose as a seller? What should you do as a buyer? And the like. So we discussed the haunted houses. We also discussed the rules in both the U.S. and a few of the states and in several countries overseas. We also had some excellent ghost stories. So some more great Halloween content for you. So with this being out and this basically being three episodes in three days, the Betty and Barney Hill number three episode will get pushed back a bit. Um, I don't know quite when it will come out, but it won't be on Wednesday. Anyway, folks, take care. I hope you enjoy this. Sit back and relax, and I hope you enjoy it as much as we enjoyed providing it for you. Thanks again, Lisa, for coming on the program. I really do appreciate it. Scott, my friend, please take it away. The views and opinions expressed by guests on the Paranormal Sun are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoint or the position of JT, the Paranormal Sun, or Tower Studios New Zealand. So movies such as Poltergeist, The Conjuring, or The Amityville Horror, where a family moves into a haunted house, often brings us to ask the question, do you have to disclose if a house is purported to be haunted? to a prospective buyer. Well, our guest Lisa, who is a Raleigh, North Carolina realtor, so Lisa Houtman from EXP Realty, she's going to answer some of those questions for us today, folks. But at the end, we're also going to have some excellent ghost stories, and we got a great ghost story or legend from the Tar Heel state of North Carolina. And then I've got a few ghost stories as well. So before we get into that, we're going to cover over these laws and, and regulations and just some of the things involved in these properties. They're called uh, stigmatized properties. But Lisa, first off, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself, where you're from, what your interest is in this, and then also just kind of how you got into this Halloween spirit. I mean, all of us lived Halloween, and we all went, you know, most of us went trick-or-treating and all that, but what makes Halloween special for you? Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, well, what makes Halloween special for me is that it's sort of always been a huge cultural impact for me growing up because I grew up just outside New Orleans. Wow. Wow. So that's, it's very big there. Dressing up, you know, putting on masks, getting creative has been a part of my childhood. Not to steal any of your thunder, Lisa, but interestingly enough, when I was researching for the uh, Halloween special, the Halloween Spooktacular that I just released. Funnily enough, uh, one of the articles was talking about haunted houses in different areas or purportedly haunted houses. And they mentioned, first off, they mentioned the Magnolia Mansion in New Orleans, which looked awesome. And secondly, they said oftentimes people in New Orleans, realtors, will put a little sign on the listing sign, so just another little sign like the size of a nameplate that says haunted or not haunted. Oh, that's incredible. Oh, yeah, you gotta I love the cool. creativity of that. That's yeah. fun. Yeah, so, um, 
like so you were saying you grew up just outside of uh new orleans yes so i grew up outside new orleans just far enough where it becomes mississippi so you have new orleans swamp nasa (laughs) and then my small town where i grew up right called it's called bay st louis mississippi i believe it or not i've heard of bay st louis oh wow (laughs) it's such a small little bay um just right on the beach it's a it's a very quaint town i'm very proud to be from there well of course you would know where biloxi is and gulfport oh yeah it's only 30 minute drive away very close so my stepbrother uh used to live in jackson and when i was a boy we went through mississippi to visit and we went from jackson and meridian down down south to the coast and over to mobile Oh, it's fantastic. You know, Mobile, Alabama is actually where Mardi Gras began. Wow, no, I didn't know that. Um, a lot of people don't know that. It's a fun fun little secret fact. Well, when I was there, I remember getting those Mardi Gras coins, the little uh, aluminum coins. or uh, the You know, they're quite light, so I always thought they were aluminum. And they were different Mardi Gras um, things on it, like the gator and I, I remember having these coins, and I, I must have got them from my stepbrother. Because when I say stepbrother, like, I was maybe 10 or 12, and my stepbrother was, like, 40. So he wasn't, yeah. I mean, he was an adult, and he had his own kids. So, uh, yeah, it was it was really interesting. One of the things I remember, not to get too sidetracked, but I remember going into gas stations, and you could buy boiled peanuts. Oh, yes! I miss those to this day. You can buy them on like, and in the middle yep. of nowhere, you'll have someone with their little stand on the side of the road, boiled peanuts. Yep. So, I mean, look, um, when I tell people that I haven't been to every state, I don't have a connection to every state, but, but I've lived the life of a gypsy rover. So, Hey, you'd be surprised the things I know, but I definitely remember going down to Gulfport and buying shrimp down at the ocean, you know? And buying, like, you get, like, a huge bag of shrimp. This was in the late 80s. But, I mean, you buy, like, a huge bag of shrimp for, like, five bucks. And so you're eating shrimp and okra and all the good stuff. Yeah, I I, uh, I, I always lead with my stomach, so I never forget things like that. Oh, well, you went to the right place to lead with your stomach. Because that's, <laughs> if you want to, if you want food, haunted houses, like, such rich culture, that's the place to be. And that's kind of where my fascination with Halloween, you know, stem from. Right. It's just, it's such a beautiful place, you know, to grow up in that sort of culture. And, you know, I grew up there till I was 17 and then Hurricane Katrina hit and I ended up moving out to San Diego to move in with a family member because we had nowhere to go. Right, like, um, right. We, um... I had to say, um, my, now to be clear, my mom's house did survive the hurricane, but the town had no power right. for two months. Wow. And they pretty much said, if you don't want to be held back a year, you need to find another wow. place to go to school. Wow. So a family member took us in, and I ended up staying in San Diego for 12 years, where I met my husband, Harry, and... What's fun about Harry is I know you mentioned Elfin Forest yeah, in your yeah. Halloween special, and he grew up, you know, a stone's throw from Elfin Forest. 
Yes, yeah, yes, he did. He literally, some things in my mind's eye are as clear as day. And one of the things in my mind's eye that's clear as day is where Harry used to live. And basically, Harry lived on the bend just before you really got into Elfin Forest. So you came, it was like a, it was a bit of a valley. You came around a corner and then you could see there was like a chicken farm. And then Harry's family's property was on the left. And then when you took the next kind of big bend in the road, then you were off into Elfin Forest. So like you say, I mean, he literally could have walked down the road to Elfin Forest. He could have, like, his home is, a childhood home is on a cliffside. So, you know, when he looks outside his front door growing up, he would see Elfin Forest in the distance. <laughs> yeah, funny funny that it, it is. I mean, obviously... I knew him from living in Southern California, but it is funny how when you read about some of these stories, because I didn't realize how it, it's not super well known around the world, but people who are into the stuff that I cover on the show, they are always, you know, they're talking about Elfin Forest and people want to go and like visit there for a vacation. And it's like, yeah, don't get me wrong. It's a bit, it is a bit creepy. And I talked about some of the feelings you get in that in there. But it's not to me, it's not like I wouldn't plan a whole vacation to go to Elfin Forest. But I guess it's the same like the the forest that I did in Romania, uh, Hoya Bachu. I mean, the people in Romania are probably like, you're coming here for vacation. You're nuts, you know. But... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So when you lived in San Diego, uh, what suburb did you live in? We lived in San Marcos, so we lived wow. in okay. so the you northern were... side of San Diego. Yeah, um, you're with your family member. Oh, sorry. Sorry, um, yeah, I was just going to say. I'm thinking, like, being with Harry. Right. And, um, so we lived in Claremont. Okay, yeah, so, I mean, in San Diego, like, not in the suburbs is what I'm like. You were in San Diego City. Yeah, that was Metro San Diego. So you have, um, if you want to start on the coast, you have Pacific Beach, and then just one suburb beyond that, uh, one community is Claremont. Right, right. Yeah, um, here, here's a little bit. Here's a San Diego fact for you. So when they opened Petco Park, I was at one of the very first games, and I was in one of the kind of corporate boxes because my mom was a big gambler at either Siquan or I, I can't remember which one I'd have to look it up but they said oh do you want to go to the game and I thought it was going to be like cheap seats and we ended up getting this box and they were playing the Giants because that's when Barry Bonds was still playing and it was the basically like the first few weeks of the stadium opening and it was really it's really cool to be able to say oh yeah I was there when they opened that stadium so um yeah wow that's incredible because I went to a few games at uh, Jack Murphy as well, because being a Cardinal fan, when the Cardinals were in town, I'd try and get out there to check out uh, Jack Murphy. And there were other people who gave me tickets randomly to go to other games. But um, yeah, I mean, San Diego, I, I, I talked a little bit about it because in future, I mean, we've talked about this before on the air and I've talked about it to you one-on-one. I've got hundreds of episodes planned, like hundreds of subjects to cover and San Diego deserves its own episode. But I talked oh, a little it really bit. Does. Oh yeah. But I did talk a little bit on the Halloween special about Whaley house and about the, the hotel Dell and just how 
I, I mean, Whaley House is purportedly the most haunted house in San Diego, but Hotel Dell is probably the most famous landmark in San Diego. And uh, again, I mean, you it just goes to show you've got those old cities, you've got the old missions and everything else. It just, I don't know, but me personally, I would think places like that that have been settled settled a lot longer probably have more haunted houses and more goings-on happening, you know what I'm saying? Well, that's what's so fun about living in North Carolina is oh, that yeah. it's one of the original 13 colonies. Right. So there's things here that are way older than most, you know, homes and haunted houses in San Diego. Right. That's what makes it so fun and impressive and learning about the area and the history here. Well, um, obviously I did the episode on the Brown Mountain Lights, which is probably the most famous, um, whatever you want to call it, myth, legend, subject out of the state of North Carolina. But you're right. There's so much. I mean, obviously there's there's uh, Roanoke and, uh, you know, the famous um, the famous uh, Virginia Dare case. And you and Harry have been there, I know. And I've read a few articles as they kind of update that they think they might have found the settlement, the original settlement where it was. And you're, you're right. I mean, you think about some of that. So that was in the 1500s. And but but again, I mean, there might not be missions in that from then. But Balboa and his men and Cortez, they were in California in the 1500s. And it's crazy to think that there have been Europeans there for that long, because as you're saying, we tend to look at things like a building and say, well, there's no building from then. But it's just like here in New Zealand, for example. Do you know the oldest standing building here in New Zealand? No. What is it? It was built in 1832. So that goes to show you from a European standpoint, how new the country of New Zealand is in comparison. But I mean, the 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 Maori, it they're not quite sure, but carbon dating kind of says they came between the 1300s and 1400s. But there's just no freestanding buildings from back then. But it all I'm saying is it just goes to show you can look at that oldest building and go, oh, so history started in the 1800s, but really it started like three four hundred years before. Same with California, and then of course with North Carolina, depending on which story you believe. There are stories about the Templars going to the New World. There's stories about the Welsh and Irish and everything else. But yeah, I, I bet you must be surrounded by history there in North Carolina. There must be so many old buildings and just things going back generations and generations. Oh yeah, there's way more examples out here than there are defined in San Diego. And like you said, it's not that those things didn't happen at the same time. It's that there's a lot more evidence here. Right. Yeah, and uh, being part of the original 13 colonies, I mean, yeah, that's <laughs> that obviously kicks it off with the start. And uh, like I said, when, when I went through, when I covered Pennsylvania with Nate, it, I'm reading about some of these things, and they're talking about haunted houses that were built in the 1600s. And it's like, like I say, we don't even have anything here from the 1600s, let alone anything haunted. So uh, there's uh, it, it's it's quite a difference. And then again, you go to the UK and there's buildings that are two, three thousand years old and they talk about some of those being haunted. So it is when you start looking around the world at different areas, again, it just shows how diverse it is of a world and how different things have been settled at such a time. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty nuts. 
One of the things about North Carolina that always fascinated me is kind of the waves of settlers. So it wasn't like a lot of people who aren't from the U.S. and, and don't know a lot of these different states. They might think, oh, well, the English settled here and the French settled here. And but actually what you had were like waves of immigration. And in North Carolina, I know there were all kinds of different, you know, you had obviously the English when it was the Carolina colonies, but you've had these kind of ongoing immigrant waves over the years. And it must really build up a unique uh, regional tradition. You know what I'm saying? Like even you might go, oh, North Carolina and South Carolina, they're the same. But I'm sure if you go to South Carolina, there's a lot of things that are different culturally. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because I've been to South Carolina many times and just it's it's just different. I can't really <laughs> explain it. I mean, I, I could say like the roads are physically different. No, I, I know what you <laughs> Not mean. Not to knock on South Carolina. Yeah. But, but, but again, you feel it when you drive into South Carolina. But again, I mean, people from California, people in L.A., they know that San Diego is different. And when we lived in San Diego, we knew L.A. was different. And even North County, San Diego is different from San Diego proper. So I, I get exactly what you're saying. It's just things are called different things. Um, people talk slightly different. They have a different accent. Things that would get someone really excited in South Carolina probably are not going to in North Carolina and vice versa. So, no, it all makes sense to me. Absolutely. Uh, but what's so what I love so much about specifically Raleigh is I love its growth and we're a very fast growing city. And because of that, Raleigh doesn't have any specific geographical features to it. There's no ocean. There's a few lakes. Right. There's a river that goes through it, but there's no mountains. It's the Piedmont region. So because of that, you get these pockets of communities next to other communities that don't really go together. And because of its growth, you could have a huge McMansion subdivision next to a corn farm, which is next to a mobile home park, which is then next to another <laughs> right. McMansion subdivision. It's really fascinating. Right. And that in turn will be next to, you know, a farm again, that has a old house that was built there a hundred years ago that four <laughs> generations have lived in. So it's, it's, it's basically the stark opposite of a lot of places in Southern California, the West in general, Arizona, Nevada, and that, which is like a planned community where you've got 5,000 homes and every home is pretty much the same. One might have an extra bedroom, one might have an extra bathroom, but pretty much every home from the street looks the same. So completely different, right? Completely different. And you're, it's just, it's just so funny how you can have a million dollar house and then like down the street is a trailer. Right. Like the extremities and how the, township is just laid out and who can live where it's completely up to you see like like here for example you will never have a uh let's say a two hundred thousand dollar house next to a million dollar house and the reason is the value here in new zealand is the land so like on our street for example pretty much every home is if not a million dollars it's close to a million dollars 
And some of those homes are not very nice, but it's the value of the land. And you'll see it all the time here. There was a, an article a while back, and it was in one of the... So Auckland City itself, if you think about like Raleigh or you think about San Diego and the actual city itself, one of those, um, one of the suburbs in the city, they had a home for sale. It was basically a home that was one step short of condemned. And they're like, oh, it's gone for $1.7 million, but it's the value of the land. It's, it's in like an inner city suburb. And that's basically what they're saying is. Even if, you know, even if you tore that off and just sold the bare land, you would still make money on the property. And obviously with subdividing and fitting more people in the space, that all drives the value up. But that's one of the things here that makes it very similar to like San Diego. It's like you, you can't lose here in the property market. If you buy a property, unless you buy something like a leaky home, so a home that's got issues with the roofing. Unless you buy something like that, or if you just way overpay, if you buy a property now, in five years, that property is pretty much guaranteed to go up in value. So it's much more like San Diego in that sense here. Like when I got here, I thought, oh, well, it'll be cheap to buy a home because California is so expensive. But when you took into account the exchange rate and everything else, Lisa, it was pretty close here to what it was in Southern California. So yeah, it's uh, there are other areas of the country that are much cheaper, but like as a nation, uh, the prices just keep going up and up and up. It does. It does. And that's what kind of causes things to be so extreme in the style of housing next to each other and how things are laid out. And it's just pretty incredible. The process of buying homes here is really interesting, which kind of can bring us into disclosures. And that can bring us into, you know, the big question. Do you have to disclose... <laughs> If your house is haunted when you sell it. Right. So that, hey, that's, that's it. Excellent segue. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the process? Uh, you, you tell us about the process and then I'll, I'll give you a really short example of what the process was the last time I bought a home here. And then we'll let you get into this disclosure. Well, to go into that i have to sort of begin that north carolina is one of the original 13 colonies so because of that we still have some of those laws you know intact today and one of that is it's a latin phrase called caveat emptor buyer and beware yep. buyer beware and that is still intact today so here in north carolina there is no such duty imposed on sellers or their agents to disclose a stigmatized property to prospective buyers. So what is a stigmatized property? So there's several, there's several things that could stigmatize a property. Um, that could be maybe there was a death or serious illness um, from the pre previous property occupants. Um, you could have a convicted sex offender occupying or living near the property. Um, one also big one is you could have back in the 80s during, you know, the AIDS and HIV um, epidemic and no one really knew like much about it at the time. Right. It was hugely stigmatized to buy property from someone who was known to have that status. Right. Now, these three things that I just mentioned, 
you do not have to disclose those things in the state of North Carolina. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, like you were just talking about, you know, the AIDS and HIV and the disclosure on it. For those of you that didn't live through it, I mean, I it was front and center to me as a child. We went through things like the Ryan White, who was a young boy who had AIDS, and he was fighting about having the right to go to school. Uh, Magic Johnson coming out and admitting he had AIDS. So what I'm saying is a lot of people who weren't born then, you might not quite realize what a divisive topic it was in America. And California was on the leading edge of HIV AIDS rights. And a lot of that had to do uh, to do with the, the, the gay population, especially in the Bay Area. But the reality was and still is in California, even if someone asks you, has someone lived here with HIV, you are you, by law, you're not allowed to disclose it. It's not a matter of, oh, you can or you can't. Like, legally, you can't disclose it, even if they died in the house. So, I mean, that's just to show, like you were saying, the difference between state laws from state to state. I mean, in California, it's illegal to disclose that. Absolutely. And it's similar here in North Carolina. Now, when you do sell a home, I uh, want to make that clear that you do have to disclose certain material facts. And a material fact is something that, if a fact that's going to change the outcome in the buyer's decision to buy the home. Right. So when you sell a home here in North Carolina, you have to fill out a disclosure form. And you can choose to disclose or not disclose certain material facts. And these are examples such as how old is your roof? How old is the HVAC system? Is Are there any structural issues? What is not listed on that sheet is, is your house haunted? <laughs> Gee, really? <laughs> and I mean, if you, um, there's, you know, there's a little segment at the bottom where you can fill out other information, but right. it's definitely not a good idea to do that. Um, Cause then you're stigmatizing your property. Right. Well, and, and again, being uh... Now, I guess it would be different. I'm sure there are homes in North Carolina that are already well-known as being, quote-unquote, a haunted house. So what I'm thinking back to is what we were talking about earlier about New Orleans. So, for example, in New Orleans, if you had a haunted house, that might actually increase the value of your home. And especially if it's a famous residence like that Magnolia Mansion I was talking about. And the home I always think of, of course, is the Amityville house or the Lizzie Borden house, homes like that, you would be a fool not to say, hey, this has got to tie into this because it drives the value up. But no, definitely everything that I've seen and from what you've had to say and the surveys that the real estate agencies do, of course, you don't really want to disclose that kind of stuff unless you have to. And again, not everyone listening has lived in a fairly small city like Raleigh where word gets around and you don't you, you can imagine someone moves into the neighborhood they buy the home and then they go oh we bought at one two three uh william avenue and then they go oh you bought the murder house <laughs> and it's like what exactly <laughs> and now you're bringing a good point now just because it is not required to disclose a house is haunted does not mean it's not ethical to right. disclose that the house is not haunted so a realtor could still go out on a limb and tell a prospective buyer, hey, I just want you to know that there's some history behind this house. 
especially if you can easily find that information on the internet or a neighbor is going to tell them <laughs> right. and you don't want to look bad to your client. So if you know that, it would probably be in your best interest as a realtor to disclose that to your client. There was actually a case in California that I covered on the Halloween special that it was just in one of the articles. But briefly, basically, the guy that was selling his house, he went around telling everyone in the neighbor neighborhood, hey, if anybody comes through wanting to buy the house and they ask questions, don't tell them that people were killed in the house. And he basically got found out, and I think they voided the contract in the end. But, you know, um, I found it. I found it really interesting that he was trying to deny that he hid anything, but he's going around telling his neighbors, don't tell anyone if they ask if anyone's been killed in the house. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. You know what's fun is, in fact, there's only nine states out of the 50 states that have laws regarding the disclosure of the death on a property. Right. And North Carolina is not one of them. Well, being an older state, one of the original 13 colonies, it is interesting that up to this point, there hasn't been like that I could find or that I've heard of that there hasn't been a court case alleging you didn't tell me this house was haunted and it's haunted and I want my money back. Exactly. I believe you covered in your Halloween special the very famous New York case about that. Yes. Yeah, uh, and that is basically, folks, if you look online and you look for, do I have to tell someone my house is haunted if I sell it, it will take you to that case. I can't remember the plaintiffs in that case, but it's in the Halloween special if you want to go back and listen to it. And, I mean, everywhere, like even in countries that obviously aren't following U.S. law, that's what they tend to point you back to because that's one legal precedent that was actually set in court. And it was it, it it's actually quite funny, apparently, that the high court in the end, I think like it was like appealed and back and forth. But the high court had a bit of humor about it because they were saying that, you know, this is quite a hobgoblin of a subject to be involved in law. And it, so they used a lot of puns like kind of haunted puns and ghostly puns. And I thought, who says judges don't have a sense of humor? It was pretty cool. And they just love the English language and it's like, how yeah. can we make this as, you know, interesting <laughs> yeah. as possible? Yeah. I believe they ruled, didn't they? That you cannot prove the existence of ghosts. Therefore you cannot deny the existence of ghosts. Well, that one was, um, I think that was the Canadian case because believe it or not, folks, there was actually a case <laughs> that went to trial in Canada about this. But um, in the in the New York case, my understanding was basically that if you go around telling people that your house is haunted and then someone buys your house and says the house was haunted, you didn't tell me I want my money back. Th the finding was that, guess what? You're on the hook because this lady that owned the home, I mean, it wasn't like she told the milkman, OK, or the or the uh, the postal worker. She was doing ghost tours of the house. And she was bragging to everyone and their dog, oh, my house is haunted. And then when she sold it, she didn't tell them it was haunted. And then they came back and said, we found out the house is haunted. We want our money back. And she said, oh, I didn't know it was haunted. 
And then they found out that she was doing ghost tours and all kinds of things. So she definitely shot herself in the foot. But so basically what they're saying is in the state of New York, if you are led to believe your house is haunted and you have told anyone that your house is haunted, you better disclose when you sell it. And this comes back to that um, news article that I covered about Joan Rivers townhouse in New York City being for sale and the owner saying that it was haunted by Joan Rivers. It now it all makes sense why they were talking about it, because if it's known at all they could basically have the contract overturned if they didn't disclose that. Isn't that incredible? You know, what's really funny is like earlier when I mentioned how only nine states can have laws regarding the disclosure of a death on the property, there's right. only four states that deal specifically with paranormal activity in real estate. Wow. And what I love, I love that it's the locations. So you have New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, and then randomly Minnesota. <laughs> yeah, I can't think what the tie-in is with Minnesota. I can definitely think of what the tie-in is with the other three states. Um, right? Yeah. Minnesota's like, we're on board with this. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Uh, yeah, that that is very interesting that Minnesota is one of those states. Because I'm just like, I'm sure there is a famous haunted house somewhere in Minnesota uh but off the top of my head none are springing to mind you know i can immediately think of ones in new york and massachusetts oh easily especially massachusetts right it's massachusetts well one of the articles that i read in the halloween special it's only just come out folks so that's why we're talking about it and lisa obviously hasn't had a chance to listen because it's just come out but i did an article uh i, I did several articles lisa I know this is something that you will definitely want to listen to because basically everything in that, all the news of the damned in that episode had to do with Halloween. So it's either ghosts or haunted houses. And there was a lady who's basically a real estate agent in Salem. And she said that there was a, a couple, they were looking to buy, basically it was two kind of like units that were identical and they were across from each other. And they went to look into the one that was currently had a tenant and they looked in the home and they said the both the lady and the listing agent were pretty disappointed because the home was kind of trashed and it was dirty and there was stuff around. And then the lady said that the the people who were looking at buying the house found a door that she didn't see the when she did the initial inspection and they opened the door and she said it was such uh, so different uh, from the house itself, because you went in this room, it was clean and everything else. And then what the lady said, it dawned on her looking at some of the stuff that was in the room that they were using that room for animal sacrifices. And she basically said, obviously, at that point, the owners were or the buyers were like, I'm out. I don't want this property and you can't blame them. But I mean, it, it just goes to show Salem is obviously a city that's a city or town that's that's got all of this history with the witch trials and everything else but it just goes to show that sometimes truth is stranger than fiction absolutely that's a really good one i don't know what i would do if i was in that situation well and, and i really felt for the the listing agent because it wasn't like she knew it was there she only found out when they went together and then it's like oh surprise you know oh dear but imagine if the owner would have bought the property and then went to clean it up or tidy it up and then they found that room um again it makes you wonder would they go back under the 
under the uh, sorry uh, the the term the stigmatized property clause and say, hey, look, this home is not as it was presented. There have been uh, animal sacrifices done on this property. I don't want it. Exactly, especially if they. I mean, did they publicly brag about the sacrifices? Uh, sounds like not, like it was a hidden secret thing. Yeah, and then also, I guess, it again, there's layers upon layers because it wasn't the owners of the property doing it. It was the tenants. So, you know what I'm saying? It's not like the owner of the property, they very well may not have known. They may have known the room was there, but I'm sure they didn't know that there were animal sacrifices going on there. Oh, goodness. Now you're getting into property management. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Do you, I know this is off topic of haunted discussions, oh. but do you recall that San Diego property that I believe it had a tenant? He would rent to that property for like 10 years and he was building bombs. Oh, wow. You remember that story? And they had to burn it to the ground. I'm sure if I looked it up, it would uh, ring a bell. It's not right now. And it's very well, it'd be one of those things if I read it and it would kind of start ringing the, the memory bells in my head. But no, I, again, like you say, I mean, the biggest thing we have here is drug manufacturing. And it's a real big industry now in New Zealand about getting your home tested for methamphetamine before you buy it and also testing while people are renting. So if someone's renting your home, a lot of times what they do when your six month or your one year tenancy, whatever's up is that they want that home tested. And you can see why, because you can have a home, you can build a home that costs you half a million dollars. Someone goes in there and starts manufacturing pee. You find out it's contaminated and then you basically have to gut the house. And there have been cases of it time and time again here that I've seen on the news where landlords are on the hook for two or $300,000 because of what the tenants done. And sure you can take them to tribunal, but most tenants, that's why they're tenants. That's why they don't own their property. They don't have two or $300,000 to take. And what ends up happening is it's like, okay, fine. Then you can pay it back at $20 a week for a hundred years. You know what I'm saying? It's like, years. yeah, yeah. And basically that's what happens is that the tribunal and the courts say, oh, well, you can't take any more because they can't afford to pay their bills. Otherwise, you know, they, so yeah. And, and it's crazy. And, you can see why landlords here in New Zealand are so paranoid about these things, because oftentimes as well, the insurance has gone up so dr dramatically on methamphetamine and homes and drug manufacturing that a lot of times they might have a $50,000 deductible or whatever it is, and they're on the hook for that money. Let's see, that was the same situation, you know, with that bomb house in san diego because the landlord did not routinely inspect that home i'm pretty sure like he was on the hook like with that house and just getting it demolished wow, wow. they had to demolish that home i remember living there at the time and like it the world kind of stopped because everyone watched it live on the news <laughs> and watched them like wow. burn this house a control burn obviously because you're like why would you set a house on fire that's filled with bombs but it was a control group because it was so booby trapped it was too dangerous for team members for professionals to go in there and disarm all the bombs they just had to implode the thing 
I do remember it wouldn't have been that one, but I do remember another one when I lived there. And I think it was actually up in L.A. because you you remember how it was. <laughs> California, folks. OK, California's got a, its ups and downs. And I've got lots of lovely listeners from there. And some of the best friends in my life that I call family are from California. But California, like when people talk about California being a reality show, it's the only place I've ever lived where just randomly there'll be daytime TV on and then they break in with a car chase or they break in with this. It's There's always something happening because you've got 40 million people in the state. And I remember them breaking in one day, Lisa, and it was basically this apartment on fire and explosions and it ended up that they were manufacturing meth there. Um, and I think it was up in L.A. And it was just like randomly, oh, these apartments are exploding. And I was like, what's going on? And then sure enough, they found out that there was a meth lab there later on, you know. Oh, goodness. So uh, so only four states that actually have the paranormal activity as part of the disclosure laws. And again, I do find that interesting because I would think that some of the bigger states like Texas or California or Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania is a very old state, you would think that they would have at least had one case come through. But uh, I don't know, maybe people kind of settle this in the background. Maybe the the buyer and the seller go back together and they say, oh, well, look, yeah, I didn't tell you. I'm sorry. Uh, why don't I give you, why don't I pay you back 20 grand or something rather than going to court? Because for every lawsuit, obviously, there's 10 things that are settled out of court. And maybe that's what's going on with some of these. Well, of course, everything is determined by the state. Now, yeah. I know California is not one of the four states on paranormal activity, but California, you must tell buyers about a death on the property within three years of the sale. Yeah. Um, and I know, I, I again, in the Halloween special, I had a couple articles that had a California real estate person. And the one lady basically said, I don't tell people about ghosts until the very end. So basically, if they're ready to sign the contract, then I'll tell them, hey, look, I just want you to know, full disclosure, because she basically says that if someone loves the home that much and they go through all the work to get to that and go through a bidding war, the odds are they're probably not going to back out. And another lady basically said, look, I, I personally, ethically, I disclose she goes, yeah, if it's like someone says they saw a ghost one time and it's kind of random and the person's kind of, for lack of a better term, the person is sketchy, I might not include that. But if there's kind of ongoing thing, if the owners are talking about it, she said, then then I'll make sure that the buyers know. And I did find it interesting that now that's only two agents, don't get me wrong, but I did find it interesting that even in that you've got two kind of very different approaches. One is I only disclose when we're going to signing the contract because I don't want people to back out. And the other one's like, oh, no, I disclose up front. Yeah, it's it's really about ethics. It's sort of like sounds like she's more of a speak now or forever. Hold your hold your peace. <laughs> yeah. Just so you yeah. know, yeah. it's slightly haunted, possibly, Do you, you know, sign here. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's different. And that's why it's so different. You know, it's so important to trust your realtor and trust that they're looking out for your best interests you oh, know yeah. there's a lot of great realtors out there and just make sure that you find a good one that's gonna you know service you and do best by you and if haunted houses are important to you disclose that to your realtor say hey i don't want a haunted house you know do your best to 
find me a house that's not haunted. Like, do your absolute best. And they'll they'll do their best to do their research and their homework. Now, if, you know, listings, they don't say that on their listings. So what right. you don't know, you don't know. Yeah, and as, as cheesy as it sounds, folks, it's that old saying, if you don't ask, you don't get. I mean, most states in the U.S., it comes down to you asking. So ask, like, how bad, just say, oh, the house isn't haunted, is it? Or has anybody died in the house? The worst that you can get is some, nobody's going to say, well, now I'm not selling you the house. I mean, come on. How hard is it to ask that question just to cover your bases? If it is something important to you, because there are people out there that um, are concerned about it. Uh, and then there are other people who, oh, it's not a big deal. So yeah, by all means, ask. Absolutely. What I'm really interested in in hearing about your research about how stigmatized properties and haunted properties are handled around the world. Well, yeah, uh, definitely. I, I looked into a few places and obviously I had to cover over New Zealand. Now, as I, as I told you folks, New Zealand is a lot different than the U.S. because we haven't had people here nearly as long. New Zealand is also what you would call a dominion country. So it used to be under British rule for a long time. So a lot of our laws here are based on British law. So when you talk about original British law, like you talk about the Magna Carta and everything else and land rights, that's kind of what we follow here in New Zealand by and large. So I've got some information here from winwilliams.co.nz. And it says, in New Zealand, the courts and REA complaints process have unfortunately not considered cases about poltergeists. New Zealand houses are more likely to, likely to be haunted by borers, so that's like a woodworm borer, inconsistent building work, or meth contamination. And, and like I say, it is a big deal here. While there are no New Zealand precedents on the presence of the supernatural, it is relatively common that someone has died at a property, or there has been a crime committed there. The leading case on what real estate agents need to disclose about a property's stigma is Barfoot and Thompson versus REAA and Campbell in 2014. So we actually had a case here about, not about ghosts specifically, but about stigma property. So unfortunately, the previous tenant of a house had committed suicide there. The listing agent had been told about the death, but made the decision not to mention it to a prospective buyer. The complaints brought the complainants bought the house and lived there for some time before they found out about the tenant's suicide. They subsequently sold the property on and complained about the agent's decision not to disclose the fact that someone had died there. The REA Complaints Assessment Committee, so the REA, I believe, is like the real estate agents, so it's like the uh, it's the industry um, board. Uh, so it says, um, the real estate agency's disciplinary tribunal decided that withholding information about the death was unfair and amounted to unsatisfactory conduct. The agency appealed to the high court, which overturned the tribunal's decision and found there was no unsatisfactory conduct. Reviewing case law from around the world, the court found that whether stigma needs to be disclosed to a potential buyer will depend entirely on the situation, which makes sense. There could be no blanket rule because there was no guidance published by the REA on the topic. The court did not think it was so obviously fair or unfair with that withholding details of a suicide was unsatisfactory conduct. The court listed relevant considerations to help to decide 
what to disclose. So similar to how it is, what the listings are in North Carolina, Lisa, with what needs to be disclosed and what doesn't. So here it's a natural death does not need to be disclosed. A murder, manslaughter, or suicide should be disclosed to serious potential purchasers. So again, you wouldn't put it in your advertisement, but if you got down to a short list of people who put in offers on the home, that would be the time at least you would want to tell them about that. The location of the event should be disclosed. It is reasonable to view a tragedy in the grounds of a property differently from one in the living area of a house. So they're saying if someone got shot by a drive-by in the yard, it's a lot different than someone coming into the home and killing someone in the home. The proximity and time to the event should be disclosed. So again, did it happen six months ago? Did it happen 50 years ago? The circumstances surrounding the event might be disclosed. For example, whether the house has been lived in subsequently, and if so, for how long? The circumstances of the death and whether the death was a degree of notoriety might be relevant, even if it's just in the local neighborhood. So, for example, this isn't a New Zealand case, but if the home where uh, Nicole Simpson and uh, I can't think of the, the guy's name off the top of my head, but if you had the home where they were killed, obviously that would be a really infamous murder home. The OJ? Uh, yeah, but the, the person that was killed, um, oh, Ronald yes, Furman, I think it name? was. Yeah, I believe so. The likely reaction of potential purchasers and the possible impact on the price should be considered. So again, if it was something that happened 20 years ago and it was an accident, that's going to be a lot different than if it happened six months ago and it was a burglary and someone came into the home and killed the occupant. Because again, I don't know about you, but I'd be pretty concerned if there was a murder in my house by a burglar in that neighborhood. So it says, now the REA has published guidance based on the court's ruling available on its website. When in doubt, erring on the side of disclosure is the appropriate approach. The Campbell case does not touch on selling an allegedly haunted house in New Zealand. There's certainly no pressing need to legislate on the issue, because again, it's obviously not something that's come up here a lot, as there has been in the U.S., our guess is that no court would be persuaded that withholding an unsubstantiated claim of haunting would be deemed unfair. Practically speaking, if a house in New Zealand is old enough to have a ghost, it might actually be a selling point. Because again, we, we don't have that many old properties here. So yeah, it, it New Zealand, obviously, because I live here, I've got quite a bit in-depth on that. Now, some of the other countries, they're not nearly as in-depth, but they are fascinating. So one of the places we talked about, Lisa, of course, was the UK, because when we think about England, we think about Scotland, we think about Wales, we think about these three, four, five hundred year old homes, we think about thousand year old castles. So surely there must be something there to do with haunted houses, right? Absolutely. So, yeah, that, that's what I would think. So it says under the consumer protection from unfair trading regulations applied to property sales in the UK. House sellers are obliged to declare if a sale has previously fallen through due to a bad survey, which details structural faults within the property and any other information that could adversely affect the value or the new owner's enjoyment of the property. Buyers could potentially take out action against a seller for years after the sale of the property has been agreed. So the seller shouldn't assume that once they've moved out, the problem has gone away if the buyer hasn't been told about it, any issue relating to the property. Although the act doesn't actually refer to haunted properties, it does mention that sellers have a duty to avoid making false or misleading statements. Theoretically, this should stop a seller from claiming that a house 
is not haunted if he or she believes otherwise. Although the seller of the property may have difficulty proving there is a ghost occupying the property in a court of law. When surveyed, more than three quarters of the 135 estate agents polled said that former crime scenes or rumors the property is haunted can devalue a house by up to a fifth, so up to 20%, and can be twice as difficult to sell compared to a normal property. So you can see from a dollar and cents reason why people wouldn't want to disclose unless they had to. But they're basically saying the UK, hey, look, if you know there's something dodgy with your home, whatever it is, whether it's poor workmanship or maybe there was a murder or maybe it's haunted and you don't disclose, it it doesn't become one of those buyer bewares or you have three months, you could be sued for years. So basically, if you're in the UK and you have good reason to believe the house is haunted, you you should be telling whoever's buying it. It's better to lose that 10% or whatever it might be than get sued years later and, and maybe lose a lot more. So then we're going to move over to my neighbors across the ditch, as we call it, in Australia. Now, Australia has got a very clear-cut law, and it's interesting to tell you the truth. They're not ambiguous about this at all. Under Australian common law, vendors and real estate agents are required to disclose any information considered to be a material fact to prospective property buyers. So again, as you talked about material facts in North Carolina. But in Australia, this includes instances that have occurred on a property, such as a murder, a violent crime, and even the suspected presence of ghosts. A material fact is a fact that would be important to a reasonable person in deciding whether or not to proceed with a particular transaction, says Tim O'Dwyer, which is a property lawyer and the author of Real Estate Escapes. Under Australian law, with little difference between the states, so again, Australia has got, I believe it's seven states and territories, so just like the U.S., different regions, different laws, so there's a little bit of difference. But it says estate agents and vendors in trade or commerce must not, in the course of selling, misrepresent any facts or engage in misleading, deceptive, dishonest, or unconscionable conduct. Buyers who have unwittingly bought a stigmatized property are generally able to prove their case in court, and the agent who sold the property may be fined. Agents and vendors can find themselves not only sued by unhappy buyers, but possibly also prosecuted on account of their conduct. Moreover, a court may set aside a completed contract. So Lisa, out of some of these countries, I mean, that is one of the more extreme as far as the penalties that you could face. That's that's really interesting, eh? That's very severe. It makes, you know, the laws out here like a cakewalk. And for, I mean, Australia is a massive country, but population-wise, I think it's... Off the top of my head, it's 25 or 30 million, so there's not a huge population. But for such a pretty small population, there are a lot of claims of haunted houses, hotels, like uh, what you would call in the U.S. ranches there. And here in New Zealand, you call them sheep stations. So like when you talk about these cattle ranches in Texas that used to be 40, 50, 60, 100,000 acres, that's how it is there because there were so few people in such a large land. And because it's so dry, they needed that land to graze the cattle. So there's lots of claims of some of these old stations out in the country being uh, haunted as well. So now to your neighbors in the north, which is Canada. Canada, Canada to me, they always seem to have kind of common sense in what they do. So when it comes to haunted houses, no different. 
On the issue of proper disclosure within Realty transactions, the law in Canada appears clear. The seller has a duty to disclose to the buyer any latent defects in the property that may pose a danger or make the house uninhabitable. This rule was established by the Ontario Court of Appeal in the case of McGrath v. McLean in 1979. And that's the case that basically, as you were saying, they said, although it's nearly impossible to prove if a house is haunted or not haunted, just come clean. If you believe the home is haunted, come clean. If you if you say that it's not and you have knowledge otherwise and it can later be proven, very likely you're going to be found liable similar to that New York case. So basically, if you're going around telling everyone your house is haunted, you better list it when you sell the house. Now, Hong Kong, I've always known, is a bit different when it comes to haunted houses and property and that. And I was not disappointed when I looked into this. Uh, I knew a bit about it because I've seen several articles over the years coming out. Because anything that ghosts, paranormal, if I see it in the paper, obviously I'm drawn to it. And uh, it does affect people buying houses in Hong Kong because Hong Kong is one of the highest property markets in the world. For a long time, it was like Auckland, where I live. Hong Kong and Vancouver were the three most expensive housing markets in the world, and then also Sydney. So in Hong Kong, where superstition is very prevalent, people do not want to buy houses where anything unfortunate and especially any deaths have occurred. For homes that are thought to be haunted, the prices are usually 15 to 20% below market value. Listings of so-called haunted houses could once be found on the real estate website squarefoot.com.hk. And I've, I re again, I remember reading these articles of people basically saying, I couldn't afford to buy a home, and most of the homes in Hong Kong that people buy are apartments. They'd say, I couldn't buy a home, but I found this haunted apartment, and I was able to buy it, and I've lived there for a year or two years. And most of them said, it's been great, I've not had a problem. Some of them talked about having strange odors or sounds, but still, they're like, at the end of the day, as long as it doesn't hurt me, I couldn't afford a home otherwise, so... It is really interesting. But again, as with anything, if you save 20% buying the home, and unless you live there your whole life, when you go to sell the home, you're going to lose that 20%. So always bear that in mind, folks. Now, again, another part of the British Isles, Ireland. Again, we think about Ireland and we think about old homes, of course, because it's been proven that settlement in Ireland's gone back like five, ten thousand 10,000 years plus. So... I immediately think about it being haunted. But again, they say there's no onus on an agent to tell a buyer about what's happened in a house in Ireland. Very different from uh, laws in the UK, which is just across the border. So Northern Ireland, yeah, you better disclose. Ireland itself, the Republic, nope, don't have to say anything. And I find that interesting because, again, that you don't have to tell them about anything that's going on in the home. So that could be drugs. It could be a murder. Don't have to tell them. Now, Japan's an interesting one. And again, because most people in Japan practice Shinto religion, they look at these things a bit different than we do in the West. Now, in Japan, a jikobukin, or haunted house, is a property where the previous occupant died of unnatural causes. Common causes of death to get a property classified as jikobukin include suicide, murder, fire, or neglect. If you are able to find one of these properties and have no problem with the previous history, you may be able to get a steep discount. There are multiple agents who specialize in selling only Jikobukin properties. 
Under the real estate transaction law, the real estate license holder has a legal obligation to inform the tenant or buyer of any known unnatural deaths that occurred in the property. The details of the accident must also be explained in the important details and particulars document that is signed at the time of contract. For properties for sale, although the law is not specific about timelines, it's generally assumed that the agent will inform the buyer if the death occurred within the past 10 years, so more than three times California law. To be on the safe side, some agents will inform buyers regardless of how many years have passed. So, very interesting, and as I would expect from Japan, very pragmatic. And again, um, it might dissuade some people, but I'm sure there are people that go through that same as in Hong Kong and they go, well, that's a bargain and I'm not afraid to live with a ghost. So why not? Now, Malaysia is another really interesting area. So Malaysia is a country that's got a very big mix of cultures. So Malaysia has been settled by first you had the native Malays, then you had the British come, the British brought Chinese and Indian laborers. So it's, it's a melting pot is what I'm getting at Malaysia and Singapore. So in Malaysia, it's not so cut and dried as some countries. However, there is a potential path towards getting a resolution if you did buy a quote-unquote haunted house. Misrepresentation occurs when someone tells you an untrue fact and it induces you to enter into the contract or SPA with them, covered under Section 18 of the Contracts Act. Malaysian law places a responsibility on sellers to disclose the correct facts about the house to buyers because telling incorrect facts can result in a lawsuit. That means that while a seller can say no when you ask if a house is haunted, it's different if you ask if someone was murdered in the house or if anyone has died in it. So if you bought a house and came across a newspaper report that an entire family was massacred there, chances are you might be able to sue the seller for misrepresentation, assuming you asked about the people dying there. However, the extent of the legal responsibility also depends on one crucial thing. Who is making the statements? This is because the law is easier on a private owner selling a home and stricter on a real estate agent. And again, common sense says if you're a professional and you're a real estate agent, you should know the law much more than someone who's doing a private sale. And then I looked at some other countries, Germany, France, India, Italy, Belgium, Norway, because I know I've got listeners in those countries. And I just wanted to kind of canvas Europe and some other parts, uh, especially India, obviously massive country. But I can't find any information on the law in those countries. Now, I don't know if it's because English isn't the first language. Maybe it's not up on the Internet in English, but I couldn't find anything in those countries. So if you are listening from one of those countries and you know the law, let me know and I'll read it on the next episode. So from an international standpoint, Lisa, it seems to be a very widespread of different laws and kind of rules. It, it's definitely not one size fits all. No, and then what was so fun about becoming a realtor and going through all the pre-licensing is how much they talk about death. <laughs> it is a big topic. Death is inevitable. You know, people are going to so, inherit properties from a family member. And what caused them to meet their end? And will it impact the value of that property? That is a very common question. And I'm, it's really interesting to hear like how different countries around the world tackle that topic well yeah i i mean short of maybe someone like you were saying manufacturing bombs having hazardous chemicals or things in the home like 
manufacturing drugs. Aside from that, I can't think of something that would tend to drive people away from a property more than a violent crime or a violent death in a home. Now, I lived in a home uh, where my father lived in Idaho. When I was a boy, I was about five or six years old, and he rented a property. And I never liked the house. I was always scared there. I always freaked out. And, of course, my dad put it down to just being a kid. My stepbrother, even though I slept in the same room as my stepbrother, who was, like, in his teens, I was freaked out by that house. I didn't like it. I'd wake up. I'd cry and cry and cry. I'd want to go home. I'd get my ass beat from my dad. I'd get my ass beat when I got home from my mom because they were separated because my mom would have to drop everything and come and pick me up. But I just, there was something about that house. I always had a feeling about it. Well, sure enough, one day, he, he only lived there for a few years. So one day when I was a little older, maybe six or seven, um, my my dad wanted to prove me nuts. And he was talking about it to one of his friends who was a sheriff's deputy. And he said, oh, yeah, the boy, you know, he's always freaked out about the house and everything else. And this guy said to my dad, well, I'm not surprised. And my dad said, well, what are you talking about? He said, oh, yeah, guy shot himself in the kitchen. And my dad just said, yeah, right, you know, you're just pulling my leg. And he said, no, no, he, he took us in the kitchen and he showed us where there was the bullet, where the bullet had went in the wall and it had been painted over. And he said, I came out on the night of him shooting himself. I responded. He goes, he killed himself in the kitchen. He goes, no wonder he's freaked out. He's probably, there's probably some kind of residual energy in the house that he's picking up on. And my dad still thought I was just being a, a prima donna. But, um, yeah, I, I found it quite funny because here was he was basically trying to shame me to his friend. And his friend was like, oh, well, actually, he's got good reason to feel scared in this house. So I lived in that house. I lived in a what to me was a haunted house when I went to high school. And I've covered that many times on the show. I lived in a haunted location in San Diego, which I covered on the Halloween episode. And I've worked in a few places as well that I've picked up entities being there. So it's never bothered me. It's never been anything where I've been so panicked and frightened aside from that that first house. And it very well could have just been my age. I may, may have just been overwhelmed from what I was feeling. But again, yeah, I would like to know. I would like if someone has seen things or experienced things, I would like to know if I was buying a house. And and like you say, I mean, it's it's one of those things where we focus so much on life and death in general. I, I don't see any reason why. Now, again, I understand you're a real estate agent. Your commission matters. And if somebody doesn't ask you about the horrific gang murder in the house, you probably don't want to go out of your way to say it. But at the end of the day, you got to sleep at night, right? Absolutely. And our licenses are at stake. You know, we have to follow the law. We have to follow our ethics. You know, there's there's several contributors to, you know, how we go about things and why we go about them in that way. And it's it's just so interesting. You know, every house is going to be different. Every circumstance is going to be different. You know, every client is going to be different. So it's just incredible. Like, this career and going through it and the the things you see the things you hear it's an adventure it really is well yeah and just like anything i mean just like a mechanic that gets a bad reputation for overcharging people or just like the restaurant that gets a bad reputation for serving uh poor food 
with a realtor, it'd be the same, especially in, like I say, you know, Raleigh is not that big of a place, but in general, even in a place like San Diego, I mean, as much as people from the outside go, oh, well, there's, I don't know what the population is now, but when I lived there, we had about five, six million people. You might look from the outside and go, oh, well, that's a big city, but you can't hide um, in in your profession for very long without getting caught out. So like you say, at the end of the day, it is your livelihood on the line. Absolutely. It is, it's just incredible. So folks, um, there you have it. There are your answers. Do you have to disclose if you sell a haunted house? And the answer is maybe, depending on where you live. But the reality is you probably, if, if you want to play on the safe side, do so. If someone asks specifically, definitely tell them. But um, at the end of the day, as Lisa said, if you want to cover your bases and you want to play it safe, that's why you hire a reputable realtor to sell your home or if you're out there buying a home. And on that note, Lisa, tell us just a little bit about your realtor and about your business and just give us a little bit of background. Oh, well, I am Lisa Houtman. I'm with EXP Realty and I serve all of Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill area. So if you are looking to buy, sell, invest, or even rent in the Triangle, definitely look me up and I would love to help you. Chapel Hill, go Tar Heels. I'm sure I've just <laughs> yes. alien I'm sure I've alienated every Duke <laughs> fan that, that listens. But yeah, now I've, you're in dangerous <laughs> waters. That's, that, that's it. And as you were saying, you know, kind of Raleigh Durham, uh, it is really a growing area. Was it Apple that's just decided to build the big um, the big headquarters there? Was it Apple or is it someone else I'm thinking of? No, Apple. Apple's coming. We have uh, Ubisoft who does the Assassin's yeah. Creed series. Yeah, I know Ubisoft. Um, yeah. Really big gamers. We have um, we have the Research Triangle here, which brings in a lot of uh, engineers and medical science. Um, actually, there is a few. Uh, research facilities here um, that are trying to find, you know, the answers to the curing of diseases, you know, diabetes, and uh, even certain um, vaccinations, you know, there's so much research and development happening right here in the triangle, and words out how great this city is, the job growth, you know, the value for your homes, and it is going up here. Um, my husband and I, we moved here four years ago from California, the summer 2017, and it was the most fun adventure we ever did. Um, we sold everything we owned, whatever fit in our cars shipped. We traveled eight days across the United States, and we landed in Raleigh, and we're, we're going to stay here. Like, we're not going anywhere. We love it here. That's great to hear. Um, so there is a question that I want to ask, and you can you, you, you can give a expert's opinion on it. How great is the barbecue in North Carolina? How great is what? The barbecue in North Carolina. Oh, the barbecue is fantastic. Now, there's several different varieties of barbecue here. You're going to find the Carolina mustard style. You're going to find that 
vinegary style and then you're gonna find like the more traditional uh style of barbecue that a lot of people call it like kansas city style or texas style now please don't anyone like you know <laughs> find uh. me on social media and like condemn me this is my own like <laughs> opinion but my favorite barbecue in the carolinas is prime barbecue and where's prime uh. barbecue located Prime Barbecue is on the east side of Raleigh in Nightdale Station. And it is such a cool, like, restaurant storefront. Like, it's just, I love the decor and I love the choice of their meats and, like, all the different stuff they're trying. And they have this really cool mural on the side of the building that was done really well. And it just says Barbecue Nerd. And I definitely have a picture of that on my social media. I had to do that. So I'm all about Prime. So barbecue, as far as American-style barbecue, is something that has only really taken off here in New Zealand in the last kind of seven to eight years. And we have a, an event here called Meat Stock, which is basically a barbecue convention. I went to the inaugural one, and there are more and more barbecue restaurants opening here. Most of them are Texas-style barbecue, but there is a bit of a mix and a match. And I think just like anything, just like in the U.S., what you call, you know, what, what we would call Japanese food might be a fusion from Tokyo and Osaka and here, whereas in Japan there would be regional differences. And it's the same here with the barbecue. I'm sure people are mixing and matching things that fit the New Zealand palate. But, um, yeah, barbecue is definitely something that – so you're, when you think about things that are kind of unique to the U.S., for example, you would have bourbon or Tennessee whiskey, which has got an international name. Barbecue's on the upswing. I can tell you, like, it's really become, like, identified with America and American style. And, and of course, people know there's Texas style, there's North Carolina style, there's uh, Kansas City style barbecue, and then there's all the other iterations, you know, be it California or wherever you're from. But that's why I wanted to ask, because I never got a chance to try Carolina barbecue in Carolina. And then the other thing, just really quickly from North Carolina, was that I sent you an article, and who was it that was standing out in front of a little hole-in-the-wall barbecue place in Raleigh not too long ago? Oh, gosh, tell me, who was it? Mick Jagger. He snuck oh, away. Oh, that's right. Oh, my goodness. He's yeah, that's he snuck away from his entourage, and I thought it was really cool because when you're world famous like that, of course it's hard to get away. But he'd snuck away from his entourage, and he just posted a picture of him like hanging out in front of this random barbecue place in Raleigh, and no one seemed to know who he was. And I thought it was pretty cool, and I'm sure he enjoyed it. So yeah, interesting little bit there. And a couple other tie-ins on Apple and North Carolina. I saw an I saw a news piece, and I can't remember which channel it was because here, like, there's a section of channels that are kind of like the foreign news channels, and there's U.S. So there's CNN, MSNBC, Fox, all together. But there was a, a piece about North Carolina being on the upswing, and this tech investment that's going on, Apple building the headquarters there and investing like a billion dollars in the state. And then um, I saw that. And then the other thing was one of those, you see those unbelievable facts posts. And it was this unbelievable facts 
that when Apple wanted to buy this site in North Carolina, they were buying acres and acres of land. And there was a, an older couple that happened to own like a two or four acre block in the middle of this land. And they refused to sell. And finally, Apple said, fine, name your price. And the price ended up only being like $1.9 million or something. It wasn't massive. So what I'm saying is at the end of the day, it wasn't like they wanted 10 times what the property was worth. It was probably only a little more than Apple offered. And it makes you wonder, because this went on for several years, it makes you wonder why they didn't just do that from the get-go if it was the one property kind of holding things up. Oh, don't underestimate, you know, Southern people. Like, their land is their blood. Like, oh, yeah. They, no one tells them how to live or what to do. It is their choice and their choice alone. Oh, oh yeah. And, 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 and don't get me wrong. I mean, it is that way in a lot of places. But all I'm saying is it makes you wonder who was it at Apple who was kind of incrementally trying to notch things up and when they sold the property for what the number was, I know it was like 1.9 or 1.7, something like that. So what I'm saying is it wasn't like they were asking $20 million. And it makes you wonder why they didn't just say from the get-go, what would it take to get you to sell? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I, I just it found it interesting. Think, I think the movie Up, when you tell that story. Yeah, um, I, I've never seen that movie. So, oh, it's a cute movie. It's I, a cute I, I know, one. I I know the movie, but I just haven't sat there and watched it. And there's dogs in it, and <laughs> you're such a dog person. Like, one of the main characters is a dog. Oh, I just you gotta see it. You know why I'm a dog person, right? Because they've not got a cat person. Because they've got life figured out. Um, dogs are all about <laughs> loyalty. Dogs are all about loyalty and simple pleasures, and first among those is food. So any animal who puts food at the first first and foremost in their mind is uh, my spirit animal. So, yeah, definitely um, definitely in a former life I was probably a dog. Cue, cue all the people who are going to uh, send me nasty emails about no such thing as transmigration of the soul and everything else, but I digress. Well, what breed of dog would you be? Oh, I'd be a dachshund all day. Yes! And that is pretty much me. I'm not a big person. I'm not I'm not tiny, but I'm not a big, big person. But I definitely won't back down. If somebody tries to bully me, uh, I've had it happen several times uh, in my life. And, I mean, I've actually backed down gangbangers before because when the flight or fight, when the fight or flight flips in my brain, um, I would tend to just say, nah, nah, screw it all in. And I just push all the chips in. So I'd definitely be a dachshund. Um, but on the other hand, I'm older and wiser now. And generally I don't go around looking for trouble. Don't get me wrong, but I'm just saying like, I, I won't be bullied. I like it. I dig it. Life's life's too short to, uh, to be bullied within reason. I mean, again, if somebody's going to shoot me, um, I've been shot at once in my life. And I don't want to have it happen again. So I'll pass if that's the uh, the choices going forward. Well, when are you going to give us that story? <laughs> uh, uh, I, I don't know. It's 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 not my 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 stories of facing down people are probably not um, as exciting as they may seem. 
Um, but yeah, I do have a few of them. Maybe, maybe I will cover those in future. Maybe I'll do that in like a bonus episode or Patreon exclusive. But, um, yeah, I, I had a few of them. Um, Harry actually knows a few of them, but, um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely tell you off air. No problem. And if you want to listen, folks, tell me you want to hear them and, uh, and, and we'll go from there. How's that? But I'll tell Lisa off the air. So if you're really curious, then, uh, let me know and we'll see if we cover them on air. So I've got, um, I've got three fairly short ghost stories here that I'm going to do. And then we're going to let Lisa tell us a ghost story from North Carolina to wrap up the episode. So I found this article on a website called, sorry, I thought I had it written here, but I don't. Um, it was called like outdoors or something like that, but I'll have a link in the show notes as I always do. I just, I'm usually organized. I can't believe that I didn't include it here. So uh, anyway, the first one here is from, is called the ghost of Oxford, Oxford Milford road. And the storyteller is writer and editor, Brad Culp. It says when Brad Culp was a student at Miami university in Oxford, Ohio, there was a rumor that the town was one of the most haunted places in America. When Culp started an on-campus magazine, he couldn't wait to write about several of the area's most famous phantoms. Not long after his story published, though, he kept finding himself thinking about one ghost in particular, the ghost of Oxford Milford Road. As the story goes, many decades ago, probably sometime in the 1940s, there was a young man courting a young woman in a rural part of town. Because of the woman's parents didn't approve of the match, each night he visited under the cover of darkness. After her parents went to bed, the young woman would sneak out of her farmhouse and flash the lights on her parents' car three times. Then her young suitor would ride his motorcycle down the road. One night he took the turn right before her house a little too sharp, says Culp. The motorcycle went one way, he went the other. His injuries were so severe that he did not survive. Rumor has it, however, that his love-struck ghost still haunts this stretch of Milford Road. Curious, Culp, his girlfriend, who is now his wife, and a friend decided to head out there one night to see if they could verify the tale. His girlfriend was worried she'd be completely freaked out. She believes more in that stuff than I do, Culp says, but he was mostly concerned that his suspicions, that none of this was actually true, would be confirmed. On this particular night, as Culp passed the abandoned farm, an idea came to him, and he pitched it to his girlfriend. How could she not say yes? Though reluctant, she relented, and Culp turned a short way into the farmhouse driveway. He killed the engine and flashed his lights three times. No joke. There was a single headlight that appeared three-quarters of a mile down the road, Culp says. You saw it start to come, going pretty slow. It kept coming and coming. My wife was freaking out. It was coming closer and closer. As a collision seemed imminent, Culp turned on his car's headlights. He expected to see a kid on a bike, bailing out from his prank now that he'd been caught. But there's nothing there. The light is just gone, he says. They got out of the car. They walked around. They tried to figure out what it was that, that they could have seen. To this day, we still talk about it. I saw something I cannot explain, he says. If you get him and his wife around a campfire, they'll swear up and down that the story is true. And if you're ever in Oxford, Ohio, consider parking for just a few minutes on Oxford, Oxford Milford Road at night to test your own nerve. So I've talked about this a few times on the show, but I, I literally I'm getting goosebumps right now as I read that story. Uh, what do you think about that one, Lisa? 
Dude, that one, that's a creepy one. I like that one. Yeah, and, and, and I like the fact that the guy, uh, Brad Culp, he went out with that skeptic mind, you know, he went out and he said, oh, it's not going to, it's going to be nothing to it. And to me, those are always the best is when the skeptic actually finds out that, hey, there's more to this world than what we can always explain. So yeah, that's an interesting one. Now, this next one actually comes from very close to my neck of the woods in the Pacific Northwest. So Northern Idaho, Western Washington, sorry, Northern Idaho, Eastern Washington, and Western Montana are all very similar from a standpoint of the people who live there at the time that I was growing up anyway, kind of the makeup of the area and also the geography. So forests, uh, mountains and hills, a lot of rivers. So uh, it's all very similar up there. So this story comes from Flathead Lake, which is in Western Washington. So the storyteller is Doug Avril, who's a retired owner and manager of the Flathead Lake Lodge. And that area is very famous for fishing, Flathead Lake. Doug Avril grew up as, grew up as one of eight boys on his parents' sprawling dude ranch, the Flathead Lake Lodge, in rural Montana. As a teen, the Avril boys ran wild. We rode around as a little gang of cowboys, he remembers. They'd saddle and head off to check cattle on the three giant tracts of land the family managed, which formed a triangle around some of the state's most remote rangelands. One summer in the 1960s, the brothers came across a, g a ghastly sight. There on the ground were three dead cows, neatly arranged in a circle. No obvious wounds were visible, but their reproductive organs had been removed. But there was never any blood. It was almost surgical removal, Avril remembers. During this decade, America was obsessed with aliens, and write-ups in the local newspapers posited that perhaps this was the work of extraterrestrials. People mused that aliens had taken the reproductive organs for testing. But one day, Avril and his friends came across a lance in their path. Attached to it was a cryptic note with a threatening message. That's when we thought, it's got to it's gotta be people doing this, he said. So for those of you who don't know what a lance is, just picture a spear. The thing, then things got really strange. Over the next few days, a series of odd events unfolded. First, the brothers stopped in at a local bar to grab a hamburger, leaving their horses in the back of a stock truck. The horses were packed in tightly, and the Avrils were only gone for a few minutes. When they came back, the horses packed in the middle of the truck were mysterious, mysteriously out, with no signs of a struggle. We had no idea how they possibly could have gotten that horse unloaded without unloading all the others, he says. So, you've got all the horses, let's just say there's ten, and in the middle there's one. So that one horse is out of the trailer, and all the other nine are still in the trailer. The next day, a new wrangler on the ranch fell off his horse and was badly injured. They'd all been riding together, but not a single other member of the crew saw the accident. It was the weirdest thing, Avril says. The man's injuries were so severe that he was left permanently disabled. Finally, the last terrible thing happened. An old cook drove out to meet the brothers and ride for a day. But when he arrived, the tailgate on his stock truck had somehow gone missing, even though it had been there when he'd loaded up. His horse, Betsy, had fallen out of the truck and been dragged behind the vehicle for who knows how long. They had to put her down on the spot. To be honest, it just killed him to see what had happened to Betsy. We probably should have put him down too, remembers Avril. Those three events were just boom, boom, boom. Three things in a row that were so weird all tied together because they were right after we saw that spear, he remembers. Three things like the dead cows left in a circle. 
And you know that old saying that bad things come in threes. So I find that fascinating. Avril used to tell stories from the summer around the campfire quite a lot. But over the years, he's gotten new stories, and so they've been shifted out of the rotation. Besides, they're awfully grim. But he recently got a call about a downed bull, a buffalo. It was out in one of the most remote parts of his ranch. A neighbor had seen a pack of 16 wolves. And normally, wolves don't bother buffalo. But 16 of them, I thought? Well, maybe. He went to investigate. There, lying in a snow-covered field, was the bull. But there was no bullet holes or teeth marks or gashes on its corpse. Even strangers scavenging animals and birds hadn't touched it. Not even the buzzards, which is really unusual, he says. One other thing was amiss. Its reproductive organs were gone. And there wasn't a single footprint in the snow around it, or anywhere along the mile-long walk into the ranch from the nearest road. Ask Avril whether he thinks he's dealing with aliens or humans, and he'll tell you he's pretty sure it's humans. But I'd rather it was aliens, he adds. After that summer back in the 60s, seeing what humans are capable of, he'd rather pick aliens any day. So that is a pretty spooky one to me, and that, of course, ties into Skinwalker Ranch. That's very much what that sounds like to me, is that he might have been dealing with skinwalkers, which to me is scarier than, than, than aliens, uh, to be quite honest. Right? Yeah. And why do they always go after the genitals? <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, cattle mutilations are a pretty in-depth subject, but the leading theory is that it's either, like they say, aliens, or it's... Now, this is kind of the 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 not the normal explanation. So what I mean is people in the field who are not saying it's people or whatever, is that either it's aliens or it's black, uh, black ops military that are monitoring the cattle for something in them. So something in the environment that the cattle are being affected by. So... That's kind of that. That's kind of the major theory on it. And then you've got the theory that it's just uh, bugs and things like that, and flies, and they just make really clean cuts that don't seem obvious. But to me, I've seen enough that I think there's more to it than just blowflies and things like that. But that's that's kind of the whole theory around the genitals, Lisa, is that whatever it is is monitoring our environment by monitoring cattle, if that makes sense. Ooh, they're the test subjects. Well, it goes back to Charles Fort. And Charles Fort, back in the 20s, he postulated that we as humans are basically cattle owned by someone else. And he thought it was people from Mars or creatures on Mars. But uh, all I'm saying is this idea is not new. There have been people for a long time that have thought that we as humans are actually somebody's farm or somebody's guinea pig or zoo. So uh, that is kind of one of those, you know, mind blown type things that can freak people out when they start going down the rabbit hole. That's incredible. So the last one I've got here is from South America. And South America, for those of you that don't know, they've got some of the best folklore and kind of these traditions and stories in the world. I mean, some of the stuff I've read from down there, it's really freaky. And this is the story of the ghost of La Parva Ski Resort. And the storyteller is Drew Tabake, who's a professional skier. Throughout Latin America, you'll hear variations of the story of La Llorona. Did you ever hear of that one in California, Lisa? No, that was Southern California? 
because of the Mexican influence in California, there are lots of stories of La Llorona. And especially when you get to know people who don't speak a lot of English like I did, I was fortunate that I learned Spanish from the guys I worked with. And so they would tell me some of these stories about things like encounters with demons or with the devil. Uh, and obviously a lot of them being Catholic, they're very polarized by these things. But yeah, La Llorona is actually from Mexico, basically. And then there's lots of variations all the way from anywhere in the U.S. that kind of, you know, southern U.S., Mexico, New Mexico, Arizona, Texas, California, all the way down to Chile and Argentina have all kind of got their own variations. Uh, so La Llorona is also known as the Wailing Woman. Now, sometimes she's lost her husband. Sometimes she's lost her children. Sometimes it's both. But in La Parva, which is a ski spot in the Chilean Andes, the Wailing Woman is named Lola. And everyone in the area swears they knew her before she died. A local restaurant owner says that he dated her, pro skier Drew Tabak says, adding that the ski patroller he heard the story from pointed at the exact hut where this tale takes place. The story starts on a nice day in peak ski season. Lola and her young son plan to spend the day on the slopes. As can happen in the Andes, a thick fog rose up from the valley, which often precedes the arrival of a real storm. The clouds enveloped the two as they were making their way down from the top of the mountain, and they lost contact with one another, Tebeke says. Desperate to find her son, Lola began screaming his name as she ran through the thick fog. Unable to see clearly, though, she stumbled down a steep slope and began sliding towards a rocky collier. Now, I don't know what that is, but I'm assuming it's like a ravine. By chance, a local lift operator who was returning to this cabin came across her body. He was afraid she was dead, but on closer inspection, he found she was still alive, but just barely. Her body was covered in lacerations from sharp rocks, and the only word she said in the faintest whisper was her son's name. The lift operator worked to carefully pull her body to his cabin, which was just up the hill. He bandaged her cuts as best he could and then ran to fetch the doctor. Together, the doctor and the lift operator made their way back to, to his hut, the fog hanging thickly in the air. When they arrived, though, the bed was empty. Just the bloody sheets remained. Neither the woman nor her son were ever found, but, local reports hearing, but locals report hearing her wail for her child whenever they're near the lift operator's cabin. And here's the thing. Tabaki does not believe in ghosts. Something, however, changes when he arrives in Chile each winter. Maybe it's the fact that from La Parva you can see up to Cerro, Cerro El Ploma, an Incan child sacrifice site. Maybe it's because Tabaki has simply read so many magical realism books by authors like Juan Ruflo and Gabriel Garcia Marquez. But sitting alone in his cabin in the Andes, with the wind whipping and the candles flickering, he swears that every now and then he just can't tell if he's hearing a woman or the wind. So, yeah, again, my, my goosebumps are, are kind of going wild and a um, bit of a freaky one to me. And having lived in some of those isolated places, I can tell you, I can see how people's minds would play tricks on them. But at the same time, I definitely think that at the basis of most of these stories, there's at least a grain of truth. Oh, absolutely. It has to derive from somewhere. That's what's so intense and creepy is like where does all this come from where's the origin how does it begin yeah and and again i'm i mean depending on what it is you're talking about so for example in elfin forest there's tales of the white witch and people seeing this headless 
or not headless, but this white witch floating around. Well, that is very similar to La Llorona, and I can see that being borrowed from the Spanish or the, the Mexican tradition into that area. But there's also stories of a white witch riding a, a, a jet black horse on the road. Now, that's a different spin. So, again, it is really interesting with some of these. Like that, like I said, when I was doing the Elfin Forest thing, I was like, oh, they're talking about La Llorona. I can see the tie-in. But then when I got to the other stories about this white witch, and apparently you can't hear her, and apparently if you go into that region and she sees you, she marks you, and if you ever come into the forest again, you die. Now, I went into the forest one, more than once, but I never saw her, so maybe that's why I'm still alive. And I'm guessing Harry is the same, because I haven't died yet that I know of. Maybe I'm. Maybe this is all a uh, a very special haunted episode. Who knows? <laughs> not dead yet. Yeah, not dead yet. Knock on wood. <laughs> Knock on wood. So, uh, so, Lisa, you've got a really fascinating one from North Carolina. So why don't you tell us about uh, the story that you've got for us from there? Okay, so I want to see if you're all right with this. I know we were going to talk about the topic of Cry Baby Lane. However, because you've brought up Elfin Forest, we have another story called the Catsburg Ghost Train. Do it. It has some similar. Okay, let's do it. It's a little similar to Elfin Forest, but it's Raleigh style. This one happens on the north side, and I just I found it so fascinating, and I wanted to read this one instead. Hey, I, look, I'm a sucker for ghost trains, so go for it. Yes. Okay. So this source comes from NorthCarolinaGhost.com. So I know we mentioned we were going to read Crybaby Lane, but if you did want to read, learn more about that story, you can go to this website for and, more. And I'll have a link in the show notes, folks, as always. So we're going to go ahead and read the Catsburg Ghost Train. Catsburg Country Store sits on a quiet stretch of the old Oxford Road in the north end of Durham. The Catsburg General Store was for years a gathering place for locals to talk and buy everyday goods. Fading sign on the store remains a well-loved local landmark. This abandoned building with its distinctive painted sign was once run by Durham's longest serving sheriff, Eugene Cat Belden who served in that role from 1928 to 1958. Belvin earned his name Cat for his quick reflexes and quiet footsteps, which allowed him to creep up on the stills of moonshiners who were still very active in the area during his tenure. Cat Belvin's motives may not have been entirely one of law and order. Rumors persist to this day that his chief reason for taking up the badge was to have the power to shut down his rivals to his own illegal moonshining business. And this is where it turns into a ghost story. Cat Belvin's family owned the Catsburg Country Store until it closed in the 1980s, but it's the railroad tracks that run close to the store that hold the stories of a haunted train still running the tracks. The story behind the light tells of a man who was killed when walking on the tracks late at night. Ever since then, the accident seems to be replaying itself again and again on those abandoned tracks near the Casper store. It's said that every so often on a moonless night, a mysterious 
light, like that of an oncoming train, will appear in the woods down the rails from the store. The sound of a train whistle and engine running can be heard when the light appears, but the light itself never seems to move. It just hangs in the air for some reason and then fades away into the darkness. Some even say that at times you can see the ghost of that man who lost his life to that train. His headless, shadowy form can be seen walking up and down the tracks looking for his lost head. Whether you see the ghost or not, it's worth a little side trip the next time you're in Durham just to see the fading, hand-painted sign on the Catsburg Country Store building. Since it ceased operation, the building has fallen into sad disrepair, and despite the efforts of locals interested in preserving the building for his, its historic significance, the Catsburg Country Store soon may be no more. Wow. That's um, that's a pretty freaky one. Uh, I've always had a thing for ghost trains, and I think because of in the area where I grew up, there was a legend. I don't know how real it was, and I've tried to track down a bit about it, but there was always a story about this train that went along the train tracks around this very deep glacial lake, and there was a legend about this train going off the tracks and and falling into the water of the lake, and of course any story like this there were stories that there was all kinds of gold on the train because it was during the prospecting days so um idaho where i'm from one of the state mottos is the gem state so i mean it is famous for gold and silver and gems in the area where i grew up so um yeah uh, I, i've always been interested in those kind of stories and there's another famous one that i covered over when i did illinois and that was there was a crash that actually happened and I want to say it was in the late 1800s or early 1900s in Chicago. And it was a circus was loaded up on this train and it crashed and all kinds of people and animals died. And to this day, they say that you can hear these sounds of animals at night. You can hear lions and, and uh, elephants. And I knew a guy who lived there before he lived in Southern California after the war. So back in the 50s. And he told me he heard it more than once. And I covered that on that earlier episode. So, yeah, ghost trains are something that are different, very different, because what I'm saying is, like, of all the things, like, you don't, you, I'm sure there are some examples, but you don't hear a lot about ghost planes. You don't, you do hear about ghost <laughs> ships, but, I mean, there have been ships on the ocean for hundreds of years. It's just something about trains, you know? It seems to really pique people's interest as far as seeing them and hearing ghost trains and that and i've known people who have sworn to me there have been they've been in areas where there has not been a train for years and years and years and sometimes even in a place where the train tracks have been pulled up and they'll swear that they've heard uh you know train whistles in the middle of the night so yeah i do find it quite fascinating some of these uh when i lived in illinois i literally lived next door to a train track the first few years we lived there and I mean, I went and played on the train track all the time because it went it we boundaried on that line and it's a sound I'll never forget. So um, I can understand some of those people being sure it's a train because I, I don't know what else you would mistake as a train, especially out in the middle of nowhere. Dude, this story had it all. It had moonshining. It had a corrupt sheriff. It had a ghost train. I was in love with oh, it. Oh, moonshining is always <laughs> awesome. 
Moon moonshining and moonshining and drug runners are two of the things that skeptics are constantly trying to explain away things like ghost lights and UFOs with. They're like, oh, it was drug runners. It's like, oh, really? Okay. Uh, no, it was um, it was moonshiners. Yeah. Okay. So moonshiners out in the middle of nowhere where there's not even a road and no reason for them to be out there when there's places a lot closer to town they could be doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, that's one of the things that they've always blamed the um, the uh, Brown Mountain Lights on is moonshiners, even though the lights have been seen from before the time of moonshiners and the lights have been seen up to, you know, now. And obviously it's such a well-known area. Why the hell would you go out there to try and do an illegal activity? You know what I'm saying? Exactly. I just love how, especially around here, they love blaming moonshiners. Hey, that's it. You know, moonshiners are right up there on the list with uh, the planet Venus and swamp gas, you know, and weather balloons. It's got to be moonshiners. It's moonshiners that are hanging out in a weather balloon watching swamp gas. That's what it is. <laughs> Kate, I think you just solved the case. Hey, that's it. I mean, it's, you know, Occam's razor. It's got to be the simplest explanation, of course. Well, Lisa, thanks so much for coming on and doing this special bonus, bonus Halloween episode, because that's that's two bonus episodes we've done this year for Halloween. And uh, this will be out fairly soon. So it'll be out definitely for Halloween in the U.S. And off air, if you send me a link to your Reality website, um, just email it through to me. I'll make sure to include it in the show notes as well so people know where to go and find you. And you can include any socials if you'd like any social media stuff. Lisa does some excellent TikTok videos, folks. And in fact, before we go, um, tell us about the recent kind of creepy TikTok video that you had where you had a little bit of a surprising find at one of your uh, property listings. I did. I had a client I took to go look at. It was two properties paired next to each other in Holly Springs. And the homes were built in the 50s. They're very small, two bedroom, one bath, under 800 square feet. And at the base of the stairs of one of the properties was this giant old dirty pickaxe just sitting like perfectly <laughs> you had to step over it to step onto the stairs to step onto the front porch like you couldn't miss it and it was just it was so ominous and it's like just the things you see when you go on properties so is there anyone currently living there no, it was okay. Vacant. That's that's what I was going to ask because I just obviously, for those of you that don't know, the whole idea of TikTok is it's just boiled down. It's like thirty seconds or less, so there's no context. It's just the video of the property and that Lisa found it. But that's one question in my mind was, is there someone living there? Because if there's someone living there, I mean, again, it's a weird place to store it, but maybe they just got done digging up a tree root in the backyard or something. Who knows? But yeah, that uh, that makes it extra extra spooky so hopefully you don't see a guy in a hockey mask running around out there next time you're out there or um or uh, a really quiet guy in blue overalls and a white mask that goes by the name of michael um hopefully none of that <laughs> hopefully not we went there in the daytime thank goodness but just oh the the sounds of the creaking of walking around both of those houses it was something else like i've been in in many houses and those two I've never had the creeps greater than, than those two properties. 
yeah, you get out into some of those isolated rural places, and especially if you're not from there, wherever it is. I mean, it's like here. If I go out here in the country and I go to a property, it's a lot different than where I'm originally from. Yeah, you, you definitely get that feeling that you're being watched or there's something going on. And oftentimes when I've been in those kind of places, I just want to get out. Basically, I, as I've aged, I tend to listen to my intuition a lot more than I did when I'm when I was younger. So like, for example, if I'm in an area and I just get kind of an eerie feeling, I just keep driving. I definitely don't stop. I don't want to check out what, what it is or why it is I'm getting that feeling. It's just time to move on. I think that's why you're still alive. You have good instincts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sometimes I have good instincts and then sometimes I go about like pissing off gangbangers and that, and I just, I'm lucky to bluff my way through it. So yeah, uh, definitely it's one of those things that, um, it's that old saying that, that, um, youth is wasted on the, on the young. And, um, if I could go back and tell that younger self, uh, a few things, uh, I'd be, I'd be living up life right now, but life's still pretty good. And, uh, it's Halloween time. So although it, it is one of those things here where, although we're opposite seasons and it's a bit lighter here than it is there for Halloween, at least we've still got kind of, it's like rainy and gloomy a bit. It's not like summer, you know, that's the thing that's weird here is having Christmas in the middle of summer. I can tell you, I've never gotten used to it. And I've been here nearly 20 years. That's, I'm glad you addressed that because I have yet to ask you about that. Like, it's just gotta be, you know, it's, it's summer and people are drawing like little icicles, like decorations about, right? No, no, no. It's. Think of it much more of a beach party. That's that's what our Christmas is more like here. I mean, yes, you have Christmas decorations and all of that, but there's none of the kind of winter vibes. Uh, it, here, it's much more like most people tend to have Christmas lunch. They don't tend to eat dinner for Christmas, so they'll eat around one or two. And the traditional Kiwi Christmas lunch is barbecue or maybe a ham, just because it's so hot here. Like, you don't want to cook a... a it's not as hot as many places, but what I mean is it's summer. So you don't want to put a turkey in the oven when it's 90 degrees out, okay? And heating up the kitchen, baking pies and everything else. I've tried to do it a few years, but it's so hard to do traditional North American Christmas stuff at Christmas time here. You just tend to go with stuff like a lot of salads, a lot of cold food. Think kind of 4th of July eating, and that's what we do here, but maybe a bit more upscale. So you'll have steak instead of hot dogs and hamburgers and you know you have barbecued chicken and things like that but that's kind of the traditional thing and then new zealand being new zealand being part of the commonwealth we have boxing day and a lot of people in the u.s never understood what boxing day was boxing day is actually the day you're meant to open your gifts so christmas in the old days in england that's when you went to church because it was a religious holiday you went to church you might have a meal and then boxing day was the, the what we what most of us think of as Christmas Day now, which is when you got to relax with the family and you open your gifts and you just spent time being together. That was the second part of the holiday. So that's why, like in, you know, when you read a, a, a Christmas, a Christmas tale, I think it, uh, I know I'm getting it wrong, but the Dickens story um, with uh, Marley and Scrooge and all that. That's why when he wakes up and he finds out it's Christmas Day. It's not the end of the world because he didn't get gifts because the main thing about Christmas Day then was to have that feed. 
And then Boxing Day is when you open the gifts. Oh, that's incredible. I want to come visit you for Christmas. I want to have like a 4th of July Christmas, you know, holiday. That sounds terrific. Oh, it's something that you would never forget. If you ever have Christmas in the Southern Hemisphere, it's something you'll never forget because it is, it's Christmas, but it's quite different. And then here, traditionally what happens, something that doesn't really happen in the U.S., we have Boxing Day sales. So lots of people go out like Black Friday and they go shopping the day after Christmas. So there are lots of people who hold off buying their gifts until Boxing Day because they know it's going to be marked down at the stores. Now, obviously, COVID has changed all that the last few years. But there's lot. I mean, there's nowhere to park in the malls and all that because it's like Black Friday. It's like another Black Friday here, uh, Boxing Day. Oh, that's fun. Because that's kind of the retailer's last chance to get rid of the stuff they've got for Christmas, if that makes sense. Oh well, there you go. So. Yeah. So that's when you get the the good discounts. It's not so much anymore. It's like. Black Friday, for example, has become a New Zealand thing, especially in the last five years. When I first got here, nobody knew what Black Friday was. Nobody did Black Friday. Now, recently, we've got Black Friday. We've got Cyber Monday. It's not as big as in the U.S., but more and more retailers have latched on to doing it. Even now, like the supermarkets and that, will do special promotions for Black Friday and that to try and get on board. Oh, interesting. Well, Lisa, is there anything else you wanted to say before uh, before we go? I don't want to keep you all night. I know it'd be quite late there. I know we're running into one in the morning, but it's oh, well it's, done. Hey, it's it's well what done. we have to do. You know, we're in different sides of the world, so I'm just super grateful. You know, I can come on here and have this chat with you. I just appreciate you. Well, for those of you that haven't realized it yet, Lisa is the Lisa that. I talk about as being Lisa and Harry are the chapter presidents in North Carolina for the Paranormal Sun. But more more importantly, Lisa has been a big collaborator. She's tried to help me whenever she can. And I know it's not easy when she's trying to juggle work and everything else. But Lisa and Harry have been two of the show's biggest supporters from day one. And so, Lisa, you're welcome here anytime. And considering this is the first time you've ever done anything like this, I mean, and, and not, it wouldn't matter if you had or hadn't. So I'm not trying to downplay it. You've done a great job is what I'm saying. First time on a mic, first time on a show, you've done a great job. And I think you'll do excellent moving forward in real estate because you handled it really well. You didn't seem overly nervous. You did a great job. So um, by all means, I mean, don't be afraid to go on other programs. I'm sure that you do just as well on them. And again, folks, uh, I know I've got quite a few listeners in North Carolina. I'll have a link in the show notes to check out Lisa's uh, Realty site and that. And if there's any other stories you heard us talk about, there'll be links in the show notes. And aside from that, Lisa, again, thank you. It was my pleasure to have you on. And, um, yeah, tell Harry, stay away from the haunted forest and uh, stay away from the Dutch lawnmower, and he'll know what I mean when I say that. And aside, <laughs> uh, aside, uh, aside from that, I hope that you have a great Halloween because you've got a you're doing a haunted house and a bit of an event at your house for Halloween, right? I am. So if you go to my social medias, whether it's Facebook or Instagram, you'll see that I've turned my house into a monster house. The lights change colors. I have teeth all along the front of the porch. Oh, like nice. it is a monster house. It is fun. We're gonna bring out all the trick or treaters. Excellent. So, folks, if you're in the area. 
head over there. Head over to Lisa's Haunted House and check it out. And make sure you go and check out her Realty site if you're in the Triangle and you're interested in finding out more about the properties that Lisa's got out. And again, thank you, Lisa, so much for taking the time to do the research and for being a good sport, having a good ghost story for us. And like I say, I hope you have a great Halloween. This will definitely be out. Uh, I'd say it will be out on the air within six hours. So you can tell anyone you want to tell on your social media and that. It will definitely be out by tomorrow morning in your neck of the woods on the East Coast. Nice. Thank you so much, JT. Thank you. No, no. Thank you, Lisa. You take care. Stay safe. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon.